on this property, and we want to make uh, a morning of um, odd jobs out of it on Saturday, May the 7th, weather permitting. Uh, there'll be a variety of things to do. Everybody is most welcome. Again, if you could sign the sheet so we know you're coming, it does help us to plan uh, the pizza lunch uh, that we hope will be an outdoor pizza picnic that day. That's May the 7th. Um, let me add something else that I want on everybody's calendar. Didn't mention it before, but on May 22nd, uh, we want to honor the graduates as we do every year. And um, this year, Jonathan Nussbaum and Jessica Adams are both graduating from UMBC, and we want to make a celebration out of that that morning, May the 22nd. So if you'd like to bring a card, there'll be a basket in the back for you to congratulate the graduates, and we're going to share a little bit of time with Jonathan and Jessica celebrating that. And then just before we greet here together today and before kids' classes, um, uh, again, we'd like to welcome each of you visitors. There's a card that we'd like to give you. We'd like to thank you for your visit and send you a thank you gift. And today, we want to welcome new members, Matt and Heidi McGinnis, into the Fellowship of the Church Body. I have often said that one of our goals is to in, in, increase the meaning of membership or to enhance what membership really can mean because we're a very open-hearted church and everyone can participate in as much as they would choose to do so. But I want to ask Heidi and Matt to come right now because we're going to, I want to ask our, our board members that are present today, it's just Brother Joe and Brother uh, Lou and, and for Becky and Justin to come and join me. And what we like to do is simply to say that, uh, that a commitment to say, I want to really be a part of this church body. I want to be uh, I want to be an active part on a regular basis, but also there's that spiritual element of saying, you know, I'm coming into the covering of congregation that I value what it represents in, in terms of our call to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we want to thank the Lord, Matt and Heidi, God's grace them, uh, their walk with God gives us an opportunity to celebrate with them. Would you extend your hands and just to pray for Matt and Heidi at this juncture in their journey in Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your blessing on Heidi and Matt. Lord, just the beautiful uh, beautiful way that your grace has equipped them and worked in their lives, making known your loving call in Christ. And Lord, the gifts that you've put within their lives, the spiritual gifts, the motivational gifts, those capacities that are part of how you have gifted them to bring the knowledge of your love to others. I thank you for the beautiful story of their marriage and uh, having to uh, having their wedding planned right when that pandemic started and having to make so many changes in terms of uh, changing the time later that they would welcome guests. There have been many aspects of their journey where they have seen your gracious hand guiding them. We pray that in this time of sharing in the, the calling that we have as a congregation, that you would bless Matt and Heidi, Lord, with... Um, a deep assurance of your love, a growing excitement in their calling to serve Christ, and Lord, above all, the richness of abundant life in Christ that we share together as a church body. And teach us all, Lord, what it means to uh, edify and nurture and encourage the body of Christ, especially in the way that we see our congregational calling here at Liberty Church. And we thank you for them today. Bless them in their coming in and in their going out, we say in Jesus' name. Amen. And we just have a, a gift of appreciation to uh, Matt and Heidi that uh, is, uh, I think, a very simple, a very simple way to 
reflect what what we value the most and uh, that is to everybody has their own favorite ways of getting into the word but I just want to share this gift with Matt and Heidi for their own uh, edification uh, uh, just a one of the uh, opportunities of faith life illustrated study bible that we found to be very very just chock full of great information about you know our walk with god and the things that all of us wonder about uh, pray they'll be a blessing to you and uh, appreciate you guys so much i almost called on heidi when i whacked my head on on friday <laughs> night i thought about you yes. it was too late for an emergency call but i i whacked my head real bad and and a gash uh, opened up there and uh it's healing up, but I appreciate your prayers for me. So that's why I'm. That's why I look like somebody's. So it, I promise it wasn't a bar fight. Okay, I assure you. Okay, we love you. God bless you. Thank you. Would you all just welcome them and God bless them. Amen. And that gives us an opportunity for greeting time for you to just go and give Matt and Heidi a, a warm welcome of membership, and then all of our guests. We're so glad you're here. Let's take a moment, stand, greet one another, and we'll dismiss kids in just a moment. Thank you. card. I had one here. You can pick one up there. There's little cards on the back, a little guest card. I told Adam and Lisa when I met them earlier that I'd hand one off to them later so they know why, but just get them one of those guest cards. It's the little, there's some on that connections table. And a pen, yeah. Thank you. Hey, Nick, good to see you. Yeah, it's one of these. Yeah, hey. Oh, yeah, good to see you. You Just one of those freak things. I, I hit the corner of a cabinet in the dark, and it went whack. <laughs> so, yeah. Maureen, good to see you. Hey, hey, praying toward that. It's, it's May 12th, right? It's May 12th is the closing. Right. Okay. All right. We're we, well. I'm. I'm standing with we you. Put a lot. You put a lot of work into it. Yeah. I know. I know. Hey guys. Hey. I was biking right by Oak Drive yesterday. Went down to uh, Hughes Shop. I thought about pop. Oh, I know. I was. I'm. I. Oh, are they? They're really hitting it hard on that. That's the first time I've read that one in a long time. Right. That's where I went yesterday and kind of made. Kind of just kind of made a big circle back up. Right, right. I noticed it, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty like real defensive. I'm very careful <laughs> about. I, w in fact, I'm, I'll tell her because I hate to slow down. So a lot of times I'll make a whole block to avoid yeah. getting in front of somebody. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm not one of these that yeah. thinks everybody's supposed to yield to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the opposite that. of that. I that oh, I did too. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, good to see you. All right. <laughs> Okay, if I can have your attention now, we have, um, thank you so much. We love the, we love the buzz of fellowship. And uh, for our friends on Facebook Live, I always wish you could just be here, right here with us, and, and you are in heart, and we're grateful. Okay, we have uh, today the um, Explorers class and the Pathfinders class on their way out for another really good time, getting into God's Word, and we're so grateful. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. Oh, amen.
I read about a traveler in Australia. A few years ago, a traveler in Australia who had come upon a very odd site way out in the middle of nowhere, a little tiny town spot on the map called Darwin, Australia, on the edge of a vast stretch of desert. And there is an old, beat up, rusted out automobile that uh, looked like um, whoever was running the tow truck had taken a donut and coffee break and never came back sitting out in the desert, and as this traveler uh, thought about what that reflected, he stopped and decided to look into the car and see what, what that old piece of junk was. When he got closer to the car, he saw a skeleton with its bony fingers wrapped around that steering wheel and obviously had been there for a long, long time, but some enterprising person had added a sign to the car, and it said, there is no more water for 78 miles, no more gasoline for 200 miles, take heed. O out in the middle of nowhere, a sign, a visual representation of the stark and blunt finality of death. Would you open your Bible to Luke 24? And look with me at verse 5 and 6. Last Sunday on Easter, we left with the ringing celebration of the joyous triumph of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, over death, hell, and the grave. And probably the most notable expression of this triumphant life, this jubilant sunburst of salvation that we talked about last week, is the message of the angels to the women who came to the tomb that morning in Luke chapter 24 with nothing in their minds other than their desire deep within their souls to honor the corpse, what they expected to be the cold, lifeless corpse of the master teacher whose lives had so marvelously stirred their heart, whose words had so awakened their conscience, whose miracles had so drawn them to the glory of God's kingdom. And yet, he'd been violently, brutally, viciously, savagely attacked, scourged, beaten, whipped, kicked, spit upon, insulted, nailed to a Roman cross. And these ladies mentioned in the beginning of Luke 24 were among the lingering crowd who through bitter tears of anguish had watched those dying hours of Jesus. They'd endured the darkness across the land and they'd heard those matchless words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They'd heard the Lord after being offered a wine on a sponge, turning it away and saying, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And when they watched those who took the bodies down from the cross, when they saw the legs broken on the other victims, and yet when the centurion came to the legs of Jesus, 
he was already dead, their hearts were truly in devastated darkness of grief. But now Luke chapter 24 finds them coming, as we saw last week, coming to the tomb and and finding the stone rolled away from the tomb in verse 2. When they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus in verse 3, they were wondering about it and suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them. Now, the the artistry of the gospel writer Luke that brings to us an awareness of how God enters into the sphere of our human experience in a way that would connect directly with our need. That artistry is reflected in how Luke records what these angels that appeared like men had to say. And what was their message? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, we may not see the dead in as stark and uh, brutal a fashion as a man on, in Australia finding an old burnt up and rusted out frame of a car with a skeleton and its bony fingers wrapped around the steering wheel, but death is no less brutal for us than that discovery. In fact, we might even say that the warning on that car about how far it is to any more water or gasoline is also another kind of reminder to us that life does run out of gas and our souls run out of water, that we're fallible, that we're mortal, and that we really are living among the dead and dying in our world. Why do we say that? Well, the last I checked, mortality rates are at 100%. Everyone is going to die. In fact, this reality of facing the difference between death and life and what it means is, is the reason, I believe, that, that God in his word gives us a space in the Bible that I think of as the glorious in-between. Would you hold your place in Luke 24 and turn to Acts chapter 1 and just keep those together so you can toggle back to Luke 24. But in Acts chapter 1, we see why we think of this 40 days after the Lord Jesus emerged from the grave triumphant in the splendor of a glorified body and then ascended to the right hand of Father Almighty in Acts chapter 1 verse 10. But go back to that second verse of Acts chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Acts, the second verse, where we read that until the day that he was taken up, to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So what you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 is the fact that there is a glorious in-between the resurrection 
and the ascension. Notably, it's 40 days, like the 40 days that God took Moses into the mount to give him the law, like the, the 40 days of fasting and the, and the fleeing into the wilderness that Elijah experienced when, when God was dealing with Elijah to show him that he had a redemptive plan even though it looked like the nation was in utter destruction. Like the 40 days of fasting and without any food or water that Jesus experienced, that supernatural fast of Luke chapter 4. And yet here's another 40-day time period reflecting a, a, a completion, a, a, a finality, a fullness of the plan of God for the resurrection. And in the midst of that, we get a glimpse at the life beyond. This morning... Uh, to break in, Josiah, when you and I were talking, I forgot for you to know I need a little clicker. It's out of that, it's out of that box back there. Thank you so much. So when we think of it, it's a glimpse into the life beyond. And, and what I love about Luke 24, if you go back to that now, just to think about what this means, is that we see here that Jesus shows the disciples, Jesus shows the women who, who then are dispatched to bring this wonderful news to the disciples that truly, if you are in Christ, thank you, if you are in Christ, you can say, no, no, I'm no longer living among the dead. Why can we say that? Well, because the Gospel of John chapter 5 tells us that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has passed from death into life. In other words, the new birth that we celebrate and we rejoice in together as, a, as followers of Jesus means that the moment we open our hearts to the living Lord and say, I repent of my sins, I need you, I can never save myself, I'm incapable of producing any righteousness in myself, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, be my Savior, bring your full Lordship into my life, and know that what John 5.24 says is true for you, that you've passed from death into life. Christ, the Redeemer, makes that new birth a reality. Peter described it in different imagery. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he used the imagery of, uh, of, of, of the birth of a baby, the conception of a child. Another great reason why every true follower of Jesus must be avidly and actively and totally pro-life because it's clear from scripture that God God gives that humanity that personhood to the infant the infinitesimally tiny embryo in the womb of every single human being that's why we passionately defend the right to life for every human being and Peter uses that very illustration in first Peter chapter 1 verse 23 when he says that because of the love God has given us in Christ that we can be born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The Apostle Paul uses a little different illustration in Colossians chapter 1, verse, verse 13, when he says, we've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So, in all of those images... What God gives us in Luke 24 is a glimpse into the life beyond. And, and he does it in one 
series of events that Luke brings to us in, in, a, in a section of Scripture that is not only spiritually incredibly enriching, but it's probably one of the great literary masterpieces of, of antiquity. This story is where the gospel writer Luke, most likely from his uh, home base in Antioch in those days in which he had discovered the fullness of this promise, had come to Christ himself and had detached himself to the missionary expeditions of the Apostle Paul. And, and we know that at some point in time, Luke took his hand to interviewing those who were still living that had seen the Lord Jesus in situations that yet, as yet, had not yet been fully recorded. One of those was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's one of the reasons why we have that section in Luke chapter 2 where uh, Luke describes how Mary telling him how she had pondered in her heart the wondrous things, not only that the angels had said originally, but even that prophetic meeting with Saint Simon, Simeon and Anna in the temple when they spoke of the, of the Lord, this little infant baby being the, the coming redemption from God. So Luke is giving us in the road to Emmaus an incredible glimpse into the light, the life beyond. And he does so against the backdrop first, if you think about it, of what happened, oh, about a half a chapter back when in those dying moments on Calvary's cross, the Bible tells us in, 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 in such phenomenal terms how the sun's light failed while Jesus was hanging on that cross and there was darkness over the whole land and when he gave up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And we learn from Matthew that it was torn from top to bottom. The book of Hebrews opens the reality of what happened in that phenomenal moment in that it visually and tangibly confirmed this wonderful fact. Yes, you in Christ can now come to your heavenly Father because the veil that separated humanity from a living relationship with God has been torn in one place and one place only in the torn flesh, the shed blood, the sacrificial offering of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that now it can be said, no, we don't want to be dwelling among the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The angel said, you're now encountering the living one who gives you a life that will take you beyond the grave. So this is, this is in essence, part of the wonder of the new birth. It's why when we think about what this means, that once we trust in the sacrificial power of that, of that atonement on the cross that we focused on in Good Friday night, then we realize why 2 Corinthians 5.14 describes how to become a new creation. A new creation, a new species, it says. The individual heart being made new and belonging to Christ. Why was he crucified, buried, raised from the dead? Well, this quick summary in 2 Corinthians 5.14 gives us a very personal kind of 
upshot for this. It's something we can take home with us today. It's something that the Bible says is the reason God gives us in these 40 days a glimpse at the life beyond. Why? Well, Christ was raised from the dead, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. A young man who had been raised in, in, in a Muslim culture had heard this good news and, and, and it, it came alive in his heart and his mind and he realized that his, his death, burial, and resurrection is for me. He heard this very good news that we're celebrating today. And yet his family was distressed that he had accepted Jesus Christ, that, that this represented a, a new creation, a, a newness of his life, and, and they were troubled about it. And they said, why have you turned your back on the faith of our family? Why have you become a Christian? And his answer is quite telling. He said, it's like this. If I was, if I was going down a road, and I came to a fork in the road, and I didn't know which way to take. I have no idea. And there were two persons there, one alive and one dead. From which one do you think I would ask the way? Jesus said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So an ancient cry from the heart of a man named Job in the middle of the Old Testament echoes through the corridors of time all the way down to that burnt out, rusted out car with the skeleton's bony fingers wrapped around the steering wheel in Australia. Job's cry was this, if a man dies, shall he live again? A little insight into that struggle in the soul is one of the reasons that we have in Luke chapter 24, this wonderful story of the road to Emmaus. Would you turn in Luke 24 back there and notice this, that as the story begins at verse 13, that what we see about uh, this event movingly reflects what I'd like to suggest to you today is a is, is an, an awakening that every soul needs. Now, the reason I say this, one of many reasons that I say this, is that we read this together, and if you would read again with me for emphasis, let's think about what's happening here. Read aloud from the screen, if you would, first. Until the day when he was taken up, Jesus presented himself alive. Would you just accent that word alive? He presented himself alive alive to them after his suffering, and he appeared to them during a span of 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. How wouldn't, wouldn't you have loved to be in that seminar? I'd sign up for that course. Jesus displays in different ways over 40 days. Now, I, I counted them up, and by my count, it depends on a couple of cases in how you see 
what Mark recorded and Matthew recorded, but I count at least 12 specific visual, visible, tangible appearances of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to individuals or groups, in one case a large group, uh, in that 40-day time period. And, and in those appearances, the Lord Jesus makes known a glimpse into the life beyond. And yet, if you go in your text there in Luke chapter 24, and just look with me at the, uh, at the 11th verse, you see that when the women came running from the tomb with that message of the angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? What was the reaction of Peter and the other disciples primarily? These words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not, let me insert there, they did not initially believe them. Praise God. Faith ignited in their hearts as the reality of the transcendent Lord and his triumph over hell, death, and the grave became vivid to them. And yet, we might wonder, why was it so difficult for them to get jolted out of that state of bereavement and grief and despair? Why was it seeming to them an idle tale that angels had met the women at the tomb and said, He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Well, I think we know, we know, don't we, instinctively, that just like that, just like any time we encounter the utter finality of death, it strikes our hearts with cold and difficult pain. We all feel it intensely. It's why 1 Corinthians 5.26, the Bible says that the last enemy to be destroyed is this physical death. It's why William Shakespeare, about 400 years ago, referred to death as the undiscovered country from whose horizon no traveler ever returns. Yes, we all run out of gas, we run out of water, we end up bereft in ourselves. And yet, on verse 13 in your Bible, look and see how this story unfolds in a way that brings transformation to the brutalized souls of these disciples, including Peter, who the text says could not help himself, so to speak. He ran off and went immediately to look at that tomb and wondered after peeking inside, what could this possibly mean? I want to suggest to you in, in five things about the road to Emmaus that show us what it means, this glimpse into the life beyond. The first thing that's striking in verse 13 in your Bible is that when they arrive uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it speaks about this journey, and it's kind of interesting that in this text, uh, the 24th chapter of Luke, there are three places where people take off running. <laughs> and here, they're walking very slowly. And the difference is notable, because in every case where they take off running, they've heard or seen the good news that Jesus is alive. He's alive. And yet here, 
There, these two, in Luke 24, 13, are named, only one of the two is named, and it's kind of notable, if you think about it, that these are two that verse 13 says were among them. Would you circle the word them or think about that? Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. Now, these are not part of the 12, the ones we think of the 12, and then the 11 after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. These were not a part of the 11. But as we, as we see in Earlier, women who had followed the Lord Jesus from Galilee, and clearly Emmaus is a little village only seven miles from Jerusalem. What it reflects is there were many that, that were so drawn and saw and heard and listened and no doubt shared in the Hosannas on Palm Sunday, and they were drawn to Jesus, and they'd sat at his feet, and they'd listened to his word, and they re re represent, if you will, Many people here today and people you know who may not have any notoriety at all, but the thing that links our hearts together, friends, is being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that same day they were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came along and began traveling with them. The first transformation that happens is our victorious Savior. In this story, in this encounter, he becomes a visitor or a stranger. Our Savior becomes a stranger. And he does it for a reason. Look at verse 16 of Luke 24. They were kept from recognizing him. Now, now, clearly, one of the things that we can see in this beautiful encounter is that Jesus took the initiative to come and walk alongside them. And a glimpse into his glory for you and me today is to know that Jesus himself, personally, though at times you might say, I don't see him anywhere, Pastor. Where is he? I sure wish he would show up. You may not have said it that bluntly, but how many of you at times have said, I sure wish I could see Jesus today. I sure wish I knew what he was doing right now. Certainly, isn't that a common thing that arises in the heart? And what I'd like you to take from this first of these five transformational moments, the glimpse in the life beyond, is that Jesus does take the initiative to walk alongside you. And he does it in ways you, like these two, often do not recognize. If we could just get that one thing in our hearts today and realize, I, you and I are as much like Cleopas and the unnamed traveler, these two. We're as much like them, far more like them than we can imagine. We too are on a journey. Christ promises to walk alongside. The second thing that I think stands out about this road to Emmaus and the glimpse in the life beyond is that the risen Lord not only became a stranger to them, but think about this. The Lord, secondly, became their listener. 
Now, it's, it's intriguing to think about how we might get the attention of Jesus. The truth is, most of us would like to know that we have the attention of Jesus. And the question Jesus asked is notable because, again, there's a point of connection to your heart. Jesus asked these two, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, of course he knew. We might say in this moment, Jesus, the Savior, our risen Lord, is the holy eavesdropper. He is listening in on their conversation. He didn't need the NSA or any other. He didn't need any listening device. His, his heart, immediately, he knew. Now, of course, we can accept that because of his, the magnitude of his, of his deity and his triumph over hell, death, and the grave. But remember, Jesus is listening to your conversation. And they stood still and their, their faces were downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And another question from Jesus, what things? <laughs> Isn't it intriguing that Jesus chooses this method? We, we could even say that Jesus steps into the role, even in his risen glory here, of the master teacher. Because the master teacher knows that people learn better by drawing questions out of themselves than they do by being told in a lecture format. Jesus was drawing them out, and of course they go on. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And here's an example of how they got part of the story, but not all of the story. Oh, surely Jesus was a prophet, but far more than a prophet. To limit who he was to a prophet is a, is a vast diminishing of the personhood of Jesus. And yet, they are reflecting the struggle that they all feel in, in, in dealing with the contradiction. Verse 20 and 21 says, The priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping he was the one who would redeem Israel. They, they had part of the picture. They had the glory promised in ancient prophecies about the restoring of the people of God. And yet, they were missing a vital piece. And I, I want to think about that as we reflect on what it means that Jesus was tuning in to their hearts. In fact, there's an accent in this text on, on the attentive listening of the Lord, and, and it, it lines right up with an amazing prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, where the Bible says, in a time in which many people were completely careless about the things of God, there were some who were yearning to talk about Him. And Malachi 3.16 says, They that feared the Lord spoke often to one another. And it says twice, the Lord listened and the Lord heard them. When the Hebrew language uses parallelism, a doubling of a verb in that manner, it, it's, it's an intensifying of the focus. So God is delighted to hear you and me talking about his ways. So for 40 days, 40 days, Acts 1, 3 told us, He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And here, he sees why. He brings out of their hearts 
their great grief. Look at verse 23 where they said the women didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, and yet they did not see Jesus. <laughs> and this leads me to the third transformational way that we, this glimpse into the life beyond. First, the Savior becomes our, our visitor, our, our, our companion. He, he travels along even when we don't recognize him. Secondly, the Lord listens intently to your heart's cry. Third, the Scriptures become a sanctuary for your soul. The first answer of Jesus to these yearning questions was to direct them back into what God had said. In fact, just as, just as in his most brutal moments of confrontation when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness, Jesus turned to the word of God. Even though he was the sinless son, eternally existing with the Father, in the battle with the devil in Luke 4, Jesus did not rely on his feelings. He didn't rely on whims or impressions. He said to the devil, it is written. And here to these women, uh, to these men, to these two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is saying, oh, how foolish that you would not You'd be so slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that, you get back, that rocks you back on your heels and you think, what am I missing? And of course, what does verse 26 say? The part that is so difficult for us to wrap our minds around and the part that even, even the rabbis that studied the scriptures before, they'd seen the glory of the coming one, the promise, but they'd missed the suffering. Look at Luke 24 Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer and these things and then enter his glory? Uh, there, there are three places in this chapter where access to the power of the word of God becomes the flame that ignites an awakening to the fact that Jesus is alive. And those three places taken together in Luke 24, give us a, a kind of a template, if you will, today to realize the Holy Spirit is doing this with us. In verse 7, the Bible tells us, verse 27, the Bible says that he explained the scriptures. And the, the, the Greek word there means literally an interpretation as if you were translating from one language to another. <laughs> Becky and I were in a pastor's conference some years ago where Brother Mark Rutland had this, was presenting in the book of Revelation. And he used this phrase that really struck with me, stuck with me. He said, in Revelation, one of the reasons the book of Revelation is so baffling to all of us is because God was speaking about a different country. He was bringing the language of God. He was talking to John in God talk. In God language, accenting what we see here. All of us approach our Bibles realizing sometimes our hearts and our minds are just dull. Write this down if you hadn't thought about this connection. I think it would be valuable. But in, in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11, the Bible says, Though we should be maturing beyond milk, 
yet we've become sluggish of heart. And, and what it's talking about is that we lose our capacity to listen when we don't listen. <laughs> There's this invitation, come and let me explain it to you. And, and the beauty of this wonderful uh, event is that the Lord Jesus listens to them and enters into their world and first explains it. And then in verse 31, it says their eyes were opened. And then in verse 45, it says their minds were opened to understand what they were hearing. So we get this uh, beautiful this beautiful invitation to, from Jesus that the word of God, more, far more than we can even begin to imagine, is, is a sanctuary where we can stay. And that sanctuary was reflected in this movement into the house. What happens here is delightful because not only has the Savior become a visitor, not only has the Lord become their listener, not only has the scriptures become like a sanctuary that they could find him in, <laughs> but, but the guest becomes the host. If you would look with me at verse 30 in Luke 24, where it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Now, notice, they'd come to the house where they lived. And they, Jesus, was going to move on beyond. But they said, no, no, it's getting late in the evening. Come and stay with us. And he enters their dwelling as the guest. But immediately at the table, he becomes their host. When you invite him to your heart, to your life, to rule and to reign, and not just in that first encounter with Christ, but Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says that the Lord in, is, in, is inviting us to invite him. It says that Christ may settle down and be at home in your hearts, that you might, that you might experience this sanctuary of the soul. What does he do? Jesus breaks the bread and blesses it, and he gives it to the disciples. And I believe that in the blessing and breaking of the bread, Jesus was in essence showing that those who have not yet seen are about to be touched with the power, the transforming power of this glimpse into the life beyond. And would you read aloud with me what happens next? And their eyes were opened, and he vanished from their sight. You have to wonder in a moment like that, what must have raced through their minds? The Lord Jesus in his risen glory, the, the body of the Lord tangible as he shows them in the upper room. A spirit has not flesh and bone as you see I have. His blood had been drained out for the atoning sacrifice. But the flesh and bone of the risen Lord God is the proof positive of this life beyond. The only one who had come back from that far country. And the beautiful thing about it is that in that vanishing, 
Jesus immediately creates some of his first missionaries. For now that they've seen him, and now that they've said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? Their lives had been brought into the very sanctuary of the word of God. And they were dwelling in the house of God's word. No longer was God's word just a a book on a shelf or a scroll in the synagogue. No, now the word of God is our living sanctuary. We're going to live in this word. And so immediately it turns them into these instinctive missionaries on the path to tell the news. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven who were with them gathered together. And I think this is why the the fifth thing that I think this does is it brings eternity directly shining into Emmaus. Eternity illuminates this little village of Emmaus. This little nondescript town, a tiny spot on the map, becomes illuminated by the reality that there is an eternal hope And it makes a radical difference in people's lives. When Randy Cunningham was the cornerback for the Minnesota Vikings football team, he told reporters just before his team's playoff loss to Atlanta about his walk with God. He didn't pull any punches. And in his testimony, he reflects the very thing that stirred these two to go running to Jerusalem. Randy Cunningham said, I'm overflowing with Jesus. Some people don't want to hear about that, and they get offended by it. I guess those are the people who have not yet received him, because once Jesus touches your life, you can't deny him, and I will not deny him. Hallelujah. And here's a guy who went on to a big loss on the playing field of this life. But a testimony like that propels each of us beyond our losses. And it propels us beyond what these two may have felt when Jesus vanished from them. Clearly, their faith had, as the hymn writer, It Is Well With My Soul, spoke of, their faith had been sight because he'd been in their presence. And yet now, they were walking in faith without sight. And yet, what it shows is that God is going to bring about that day when, yes, our faith shall be sight. Now, how do we know that? And I want to finish with a a summary that I think is a good way to apply to our hearts. One little verse out of Hebrews chapter 2 that brings together the fact that this glimpse into the life beyond could only happen because of the glorified, risen Jesus being alive now, today. We can say like they did when he vanished from their sight. We must go and tell. You might say today, I sure wish he wouldn't vanish from my sight. Of course you would say that because that would be our desire. But the Bible puts this in very 
visual terms. What we can trust now as we let the word of the gospel dwell in us richly is that we see Jesus. Yes, we see him with the eye of faith, but we see Jesus because he was made a little lower than the angels, the incarnation, the Christmas story, crowned with glory and honor that he might suffer death for every human being. And those first four words, if you would stand with me, I'm going to ask you to say them with me, and we're going to apply it this way. Remember, these 40 days was really a time to give a glimpse into the life beyond, and why would we need that? All of us have been touched by the loss of death, as I said last week, in our own church body here, in how could I even ever put into words the loss we felt when the Lord took our beloved Sylvia from us, and she entered into that eternal reward, when, when, when our beautiful Nancy so gifted in so many ways that served this church body in so many ways. When, when we saw that last moment with Nancy in October and so many others, your loved ones, people that you know, and you say, I know, I know. You see, because when, I, when Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? God gave him a prophetic answer. I know that my Redeemer lives. This was uttered thousands of years before the real Easter because God had planned all along that a glimpse into the life beyond would come one way and one way only through the risen glory of the eternal Son. Lord, together as we stand, I want to ask you, friends, to say these four words with me, but we see Jesus. Would you say that? But we see Jesus. Say it one more time. But We see Jesus. Lord, this is what you gave these two on the road to Emmaus. You gave them the assurances they ran to tell the eleven, we have seen the Lord. We didn't recognize him, but now we know. And you can run. You can say, truly, in my heart now, because of the glory of his truth, I see Jesus. And I walk with Jesus, and I trust Jesus, and we together are looking unto Jesus. Amen.